Hola, pod peeps across the digital domain. It's the Deacon's Pod, where spirituality and justice meet real American life in the 21st century. I'm Deacon Dennis. Say hello to my co-conspirators, Paulist affiliate Deacons, Deacon Tom and Deacon Drew. Hello, this is Deacon Drew. How is everybody doing today? Hello, this is Tom. Doing well. How is everyone? It's Deacon Dennis here. Glad to see you guys. Today, we have another remarkable guest with us on Deacon's Pod, Dawn Eden Goldstein. She is the author of a biography of a truly amazing Jesuit priest, Father Ed Dowling. Her book, Father Ed, the story of Bill W.'s spiritual sponsor, released a month ago by Orbis Books. Dawn graduated from New York University with a degree in communications, received her MA in theology from Dominican House of Studies, and in May 2016 became the first woman in the University of St. Mary of the Lakes history to receive a Doctor of Sacred Theology degree. And I believe the only woman to do so through now, Phil? You know, that's a very good question. I don't know the answer to that, but, but definitely I was the first. You were on the list of their notable alumni. Um, <laughs> Uh, alumni, and because maybe you're the only woman, they don't, they haven't put a separate column up. So I thought that might still be relevant <laughs> since they're big on Latin, but apparently not in this case. You've also written several other books. Sunday Will Never Be the Same, and The Thrill of the Chase, My Peace I Give You, and Remembering God's Mercy. Dawn began her work as a rock and roll historian and went on to editorial positions at the New York Post and the Daily News. Dawn has taught at several universities and seminaries in the United States, England, and India. In 2022, she earned a licentiate in canon law from Catholic University of America. And you can follow Dawn on her Twitter account at Dawn of Mercy and visit her blog at dawneden.blogspot.com. So welcome, Dawn. Welcome. Thank you so much, Deacon Tom. And you know, at the time that that book sleeve was made with my bio on it, I had thought for sure that I was going to <laughs> finish earning my canon law degree by the end of this year. I, I still have a couple of weeks. And actually, just today, I'm working on finishing my thesis. Close I enough. You know, with regard to the degree. Sorry, what did you say? Close enough. <laughs> Thank you. Close enough for jazz. Yes. What do we call it when you get your de- degree, but you don't, you don't cross the stage, or you, you don't walk, right? That the, you're, you're there, but not there. So it's like the diaconate. They would have kicked you out if they weren't going to accept your, your work, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. One, 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 would, one would think. So, yes, just all but thesis on the canon law degree. Uh, yeah, that last, that last hurdle. Yes, indeed. Yes. Your book has a nice endorsement from Father Jim Martin, too. Another Jesuit, a compadre of, well, in the same order as Father Ed. A nice write-up from him also. He was a guest a couple months ago for us. Just a, a lovely man. Again, busy in the image of Father Ed. Yes. Just doing the good work that, um, you know, we try and reach folks outside the pew. We all go to, to church, and it's nice to see the people and to, to be pastorally involved with them and care. But the, the bigger audience that we're trying to reach is the digital people who are might come across this podcast and, and be wondering about church and faith and hear stuff and, and going on. And I think we presented some guests and you being, again, today's guests that really say the uh, dynamics of why, why we stay in the church, what it has to offer, the, the good work that's being done. You know, it's easy to criticize yes, something. Yes. But this man was amazing. And it's kind of interesting. He's not a saint already. So um, That's how I feel. Yeah, really. And you've done an excellent job from his own. I think the, the unique part of your book you could tell us about is first, can you tell us about your own story, how you've got a remarkable journey here. So can we start with that? Sure, sure. Thank you. And I, I do identify with Father Ed Dowling in that I was a late vocation to theology only in Father Ed Dowling's day. A late vocation was age 21, his yeah. age, when he entered the Society of Jesus. And, you know, today, you know, we'd have a different idea of what constitutes a late vocation. I was born into a Jewish family. I was a bat mitzvah. Then during my 20s, teens and 20s, I, I was agnostic. And, you know, I had I had some real problems that I needed to heal from. I had suffered abuse in childhood, including psychological abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, 
also physical abuse. And so in my teens, 20s, like many people who were abused in childhood, I, I wasn't even really aware that what had been done to me was abuse because kids tend to blame themselves for things that are done to them. They tend to think either, well, you know, maybe this person was right to do this. Maybe I deserved it. Or they think, well, it's my fault because I didn't fight back. I didn't stop it. Because I hadn't addressed those wounds of trauma or even learned to understand them as wounds from trauma. During my 20s, I was suffering from the effects of what I now know or know as PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, which often is misdiagnosed as it was in my case. In my case, it was misdiagnosed as simply major depression. But, you know, during that time, I was really trying to find love in things that weren't love. I knew I, I wanted joy. And, you know, at that time, the closest that I came to the joy that I really wanted to experience was through music. So I was a rock and roll historian. And I still certainly support music as a source for joy. I just better understand now how that glimpse of the transcendent that I experienced through my love of music is really a, a glimpse of you know our Lord, who is the fulfillment of all the good, all the true, all the beautiful. You know, any joy, any pleasure that we that we have is truly good. Will is 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 a kind of foretaste of the joy that we'll have in heaven. I certainly couldn't have told you that back in my twenties, though. I when I was thirty one, I had an encounter with God that led me to seek baptism. So I became baptized Protestant, just non-denominational. I spent about five years church shopping, rather determined that I was going to be ABC, anything but Catholic. <laughs> and, and, you know, thankfully for me, God had other plans. So I entered the Catholic Church in 2006 I enjoyed a few years of being this radically right-wing culture wars Catholic, alienating many of my past friends and alienating many other people who might have chosen to be my friend had I <laughs> appeared approachable. And then when I wrote my book on healing from trauma, my piece I give you, Healing Sexual Wounds with the Help of the Saints, I started to realize that maybe these pro progressive Catholics aren't so bad because I noticed that when people were doing outreach and ministry to people who had suffered childhood sexual abuse or other kinds of abuse, those people tended to be more at the center or left side of the spectrum. Not that we should have any spectrum in the Catholic Church. We should all just be Catholic. But, you know, as Americans, it's quite easy to fall into these categories and terms. So as I began speaking about Healing from Abuse with the Help of the Saints, the, the the topic of my book, my piece I give you, I started to become less involved in the culture wars. And then with Pope Francis, I'd always been taught by my professors at the Dominican House of Studies, listen to the Pope, study what the Pope writes. So it was interesting with Pope Francis becoming Pope, I became the ultra-montane hyper-papalist compared to my professors. Now it was these you know, former ultra-montane hyper-papalists who were now saying, don't listen to the Pope yet. Don't listen to him until we've vetted him and come up with what we believe is the way to interpret him that won't challenge us or make us uncomfortable. And meanwhile, I'm thinking, wait, I was taught to listen to the Pope and not to judge the Pope, but to let his writings, his sayings judge me. And I'm sorry, I'm sorry, am I talking too long? Deacon no, no, not, no, at, no, not, no, at no. not at all. I just wanted to, because we run into this once in a while, ultramontane, would you just tell our audience what you mean by that? Oh, absolutely. And that was why I used the term hyper-papalist uh, no, as I, well. Well, and um, I thought it was a marvelous yeah. description. And I, <laughs> I'm you. finding it fascinating, but there may be people who listening who might not quite know what that means. So if you don't, if you don't mind. Absolutely. So the term ultramontane literally means like beyond the mountains, beyond the the Alps. And somehow around the time of 
the first Vatican Council back in 1870, and you know, leading up to that, I guess the late 1860s, there were certain people who were arguing for the dogma of papal infallibility, and I think they were ridiculed by some others as being hyper-papalist, meaning like being over-the-top fanatics of the Pope. And somehow that term ultramontane became applied to that. And I guess maybe it meant that it was mocking those people who lived beyond the Italian Alps, who (laughs) were still looking to the Pope for, you know, what to do, what to say. So anyway, yeah, it is kind of funny that these same people, these same professors who were telling me to listen to the Pope after Francis's pontificate were saying, you know, don't listen to the Pope unless we've vetted him. Meanwhile, I read Francis's first interview, his interview with with Father Spadaro, or Force Father Spadaro. And in that interview, which was published under the title, A Big Heart Open to God, Pope Francis talks about the church's sexual teachings, about the church's pro-life teachings, and he affirms he is the Pope, he is a man of the church, he is pro-life, he is pro-chastity, all those things. Mm-hmm. At the same time, he also affirms something that challenged me personally. He said that those teachings can't be the only thing we talk about, and that we have to be cautious that we're not giving people the impression that sexual sins are the only sins. Or Too late. Too late. I know, right? Right? It's true. <laughs> so, so I let Francis challenge me, and I became less on the, you know, front lines of the culture wars. And, you know, like Pope Francis, I consider myself a woman, of, uh, a person of the church, in my case, a woman of the church. And I also, you know, uphold all, you know, the teachings of the church. I do feel that it's important that our first approach to people be an approach of welcome, because if people are attracted to the church, then they're going to want to know how they can enter more deeply into the heart of the church. And that will lead them to study the church's teachings and find find those points of connections where those teachings come from a place of love and not hatred or judgment. But if we lead with those sexual teachings, then, you know, people who feel themselves judged by those teachings will push back. And I understand that, you know, I certainly used to be one of those people, which is why I delayed becoming Catholic until I was in my late 30s. So I'm grateful to be challenged by this Pope. And I, in writing about Father Ed, I sought to emphasize the ways in which he presents a model of how to live church, how to be church. And also, I wanted to emphasize the ways in which Father Ed Dowling really presages Pope Francis. There's no doubt that Father Ed was pro-life. There's no doubt that he was pro all the church's teachings, including the sexual teachings. At the same time, Father Ed made himself approachable. It was said of Father Ed Dowling that by more than one person, that people felt more comfortable coming to Father Ed with a problem than without a problem. And I mean, how many of us know a priest whom we can say that of? I mean, I've been very blessed in that I've known more priests than, you know, the average you know, person. And, and among by no, knowing more priests, that also increases the ratio that I'll know good priests. So, you know, I've known some wonderful priests. But I think, you know, the average person in the pews might justifiably feel uncomfortable approaching a priest with their most embarrassing problems. So I think Father Ed is a great model for the, the priesthood and for all of us in his approachability and his non-judgmental attitude. You know, he was very, like, as you say, he was very approachable. And what I found interesting is that in the, you know, 1940s, 50s, before Vatican II and the 60s, and Vatican II didn't really hit the ground till the mid 60s. So in, in over here, so, you know, he was way ahead of his time, as you mm-hmm. said. He was doing Vatican, his attitudes were Vatican II attitudes, you know, 25 years ahead of time, which is amazing when you think about Yes. The insular, defensive, Catholic ghetto culture of those times. 
Yes. Which I grew up on the tail end of. So Mm -hmm. I know this firsthand in those attitudes that this guy in the most ultra montane order at the time prided themselves on being the Pope's shock troops, the Jesuits. Right. How the heck did this guy (laughs) overcome all of Catholic culture that he grew up in, that he got a double, triple dose of that Kool-Aid in the Jesuits, and then he he doesn't have any clericalism. This is the height of clericalism in the the American church. that's right. And this guy is trusting lay people, respecting lay people, saying, oh, they can do this on their own. They don't need priests doing this. I'm just reading this saying, this man was a prophet. You know, what? just like, I don't know, how did he get this? Where did this come from? He's like from another planet, given his <laughs> training time. He, you know, he was, he's like a time traveler from our time going back there where this yes. would have been yes, heresy. So. This would have been heresy. Except then he got away with it. I know how he got away with it. He got away with it because we don't want even to acknowledge those people that he was working with. Those alcoholics, those people, right? No, no, right. We, you, you know, the, the prisoners. Less the, it's yeah, yeah. right. The prisoners. Tom and I are prison chaplains, oh. long time, you know, retired prison chaplains, and so we know that it's like, well, as long as you're handling that deacon, you know, <laughs> we don't really care. <laughs> we'll leave no you alone. Asking a lot of questions or well, worrying exactly, about what you're exactly doing. That's exactly it. There. As I write in my book, Father Ed, Father Ed was good friends with. Father Dismas Clark, who was with him in the Jesuit novitiate, which is the first two years of Jesuit formation. They have a very long road of, of, of formation, probably the longest in the church. Anyway, so Father Dismas Clark, who was Father Ed's friend, started the first halfway house for former uh, inmates, really in the country, Dismas House in St. Louis, which you know operated for, for decades, even after Father Dismas's death. Well, uh, because Father Ed was so close to Father Dismas, Father Dismas was Father Ed's spiritual director, and because Father Ed was working largely with alcoholics and other people with problems, and Father Dismas with, with criminals and current or former inmates, the Jesuits in the community at St. Louis University, which was the academic community across town from the writer's community that Father Ed was part of, the kind of, you know, my grandfather might use the word hoity-toity, you know, (laughs) Jesuits at St. Louis University, the we would call them today the elite, would say as a sort of inside joke, they would say, if you're seeking marriage preparation, and you're a prostitute or a convict, you can go to Father Ed or Father Dismas. Otherwise, you can go to any priest. Yeah, Father St. Dismas was the, uh, the good thief there. That's, yes. and that was, that was uh, Father Ed's vowed name. Didn't he take that same yeah. name? Or the, yeah. Yes, he did. And I believe that it's very likely through Father Ed that Father Dismas Clark probably developed his own to St. Dismas because Father Dismas Clark did not take Dismas as his vow name. As far as I know, he adopted the name some years later. But there's an awful lot in your, in your that you discovered and put in the, the print, Dawn, that shows the character of Father Red in a way that he suffered so greatly in his discernment. Yes. You call it, I think, some kind of hell. I forget, personal hell yes. on that discernment. And his suffering through the arthritis, the crippling arthritis that he had from late 20s, right? Yes. So there's two or three passages in the book that talk about his suffering and how this man carried the suffering. And it seems to me as you go through the book, the greater his suffering, the more his energy level of serving others. So this man didn't, he was being directed by the Holy Spirit. He was doing what we failed to learn yet is is to listen to the, the, the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And I don't know whether it was competition with because he didn't feel that intellectual call. I think he got turned down for that fourth right. vow, which right. is, you know, to be the SEAL Team 6 for the Pope. He got, he got turned right. down for that, right? But everything he has really enlightens what we already started talking about, that accompaniment, what Francis calls accompaniment 60 years yes. later. Yes. That personal invitation. And that's what, to me, is so exciting about this man. 
starting all the, 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 the ventures, the working with the anxiety disorders, working with troubled marriages, of course, that yeah. would come out of the AA. But is that a way he was able to cope? He, he knew he was alone, alone in many ways. I mean, that he was just directed and, and was all over the place. And I guess he was acting pretty much like us as prison chaplains. They didn't, they didn't deal with him because he was taking care of the people they didn't want to take care of. Well, I think that's, that's very true. The Society of Jesus permitted Father Ed to have his own sort of area of operation that very few in the society really recognized as a place where they should be. Of course, things are quite different now in the Society of Jesus. They're quite more favorable to social justice and recognizing that social justice, you know, includes you know, reaching out to every group that might be God's poor, whether these are Catholics or, or not, people who are who are poor in, in spirit. So just to get to what you're saying about how Father Ed's energy increased, his energy to go around reaching out to people who are suffering, even as his own terrible illness with his with his painful arthritis kept getting worse over the years. What I wanted to share in relation to that is that when I was writing my book, Father Ed, the story of Bill W.'s spiritual sponsor, the number one task on my mind was to really collect in a coherent narrative fashion what Father Ed said about himself, like his own letters, his own writings, but also what other people said about him, including the many interviews that I did. I, I was really blessed that even though Father Ed died 62 years ago, I was still able to find a number of living people who had very fresh, very strong memories of him. And so because I was so taken up with getting the facts and the narrative of his life straight, I didn't have as much time or brain space to spiritually reflect on Father Ed. I had some time, but you know, not as much as I've had since completing Father Ed early this year. And since then, I've realized something that relates very much to his work with AA in terms of why he was able to identify with alcoholics, even though he was not one. So the 12th step of Alcoholics Anonymous. Let me look at the end of my own book here so that I can read it so that I'm, I'm not trusting my own memory here. Like Father Ed, I'm a non-alcoholic. Father Ed, by the way, called called himself underprivileged. Yes, for being yeah, that was rather unique. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. So I'm one of the underprivileged. So step 12 is having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. So what this 12th step gets to, and that was written by Bill Wilson, whom, whom Father Ed befriended and became a spiritual guide to very early in the history of AA uh, back in 1940. But in about 1939, 38 or 39, Bill Wilson wrote out these 12 steps based partly on principles that he had gotten from a Protestant group that he was involved with at the time called the Oxford Group. But also these steps were based on Bill's own experience and the experience of the other first 100 members of, of AA. And in Bill's experience, the only way that he could maintain his sobriety was through sobering up other drunks, through helping other, other alcoholics gain sobriety. That's why the date of AA's founding is not traced to Bill Wilson's sobriety date in 1934, but rather it's traced to uh, the date in 1935 when Dr. Bob had his last drink because Dr. Bob was an alcoholic whom Bill was ministering to. And it was through those two men mutually being present for one another because Bill needed Dr. Bob as as much as Dr. Bob needed him. Sure. Bill yeah. could not maintain his sobriety without helping someone like Dr. Bob get sober. That's why AA dates its founding to 
this event encounter that occurred with just two alcoholics talking to one another, it's very much a parallel with the Catholic Church, with the founding of the church. You know, we we say the church began from Jesus' side, you know, on the cross. You know, we symbolically we date the church's founding to Jesus pouring out himself upon the cross. And we think of the wound in his side where his sacred heart was wounded and overflowed physically with the blood and water, but also more importantly, spiritually. So, you know, that moment of the Catholic Church's founding, Jesus wasn't the only person there. Mary and John were at the foot of the cross. And so the Catholic Church, the church was born of that encounter. Anyway, this is all a very roundabout way of saying that just as Bill Wilson needed that 12th step of carrying this message to other alcoholics in order to maintain his sobriety, likewise, Father Ed Dowling, although he was not an alcoholic, he found in AA the principles that enabled him to find true joy in his priesthood. He told his sister, Anna, that the graces that he received from working with alcoholics were equivalent to the graces he experienced at his priestly ordination. You know, that's astonishing for a priest to say in any age, and particularly in the 1940s. But what it tells me is that Father Ed, even upon his priestly ordination, had the sense that something was missing from his joy and that he began to find that true joy exercising his priesthood through encountering alcoholics, be they, you know, of any religion or no faith, encountering them by being Christ to them and receiving in them the poor Christ, as we hear in Matthew 25, when Jesus says that anyone who is God's poor, whom we minister to, we're ministering to Christ. That was Father Ed's experience, and I think that's where he drew his strength. Indeed. I thought the dialogue throughout the book from the personal correspondence between him and Bill W. about the conversion to the Catholic faith, that dialogue. You know, you just go in and he just never, never puts a hook in him. It's it's all invitation. Yes. It's tremendous insight into that accompaniment. He's not criticizing him. He, he knew the history of, you know, coming out of the, the uh, uh, previous, uh, well, the, the Oxford group, that no spirituality could be in, involved in. So, but he just went through that whole relationship. And come out with that approach until the, the mid-70s. Really, the exactly. The of invitation. <laughs> right. In the 40s, it was, you go and hook them. Yeah, you, and bring him you in. You tell him what a sinner. You put the fear of God into him. <laughs> yes. you, you put him in the fire of hell. You let him know, and you do it even though he doesn't appreciate it because he'll thank you in heaven. This idea of yeah. the gentle, like, well, you'd be welcome, you know, and yes, there's things you like. You should listen to that. I was blown away. It's yeah. like 1972 or 6 or something when you started getting those evangelization documents out of the Vatican that you begin to have a, well, maybe we shouldn't be hitting them in the head with a club. <laughs> so, you know, he, this man is remarkably ahead of the curve on so, so, so many things. Man. I'm so glad to hear you say that because I was constantly in awe of how ahead of his time Father Ed was. And, you know, sometimes Father Ed was so ahead that he made me uncomfortable and I had to pray and ask God, what am I missing here? I'll give you an example. So I wrote my master's thesis as a critique of a certain popular way of presenting theology of the body. I studied John Paul II's original theology of the body talks, and then I studied the presentation of a certain popularizer of theology of the body who, who shall go nameless. And I pointed out that this popularizer was making it seem like a theology of sex, whereas it's really a you know a theology of love first and 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 foremost, and it is about the church's sexual teachings, but it's not about put it this way: the theology of the body is not just saying you know God wants you to have great sex, which is the impression that some people might get from listening to the popularizers. Uh, so I had in my mind a very strong 
idea that priests and people telling about the Catholic faith should be careful not to speak explicitly about the sexual act, the marital act, as as, uh, theologians call it. So I'm reading this talk of Father Ed to married couples in the late 1940s. This is the time when people were just beginning to understand the whole biology of sexual pleasure with the Kinsey Report and other writings of sexologists. Sexology is just beginning to come out. So Father Ed is speaking to married couples, and he starts to speak about the climax of sexual of the, of the sexual act and about the different sorts of pleasure curves of the man and the woman and about how important it is for the husband to recognize this difference in the pleasure curves. And I'm reading this, and I must say, Father Ed is using the proper scientific language. He's not using slang. He's not joking or being coarse. He's simply using the sexologist language. But in reading this, I just stopped and I was like, yuck. And then I just stopped and I just (laughs) prayed. Well, I'd like to say I prayed to God. I did pray to God. But I also just spoke to Father Ed because I believe he's in heaven. I said, Father Ed, you're going to have to explain to me how I can cope (laughs) with this because I'm having trouble with this. And what came to me when I meditated on it was that there is a difference between the way Father Ed was speaking and the way that popularizers that I don't like of theology of the body speak, which is that, as I mentioned, Father Ed wasn't coarse. He used scientific language. But more than that, Father Ed was speaking to a closed group of only couples at these Cana conferences where he would speak, there would be a separate room for the children where they would be watched over. So there's no risk of Father Ed, you know, causing scandal or saying things to children that they're not yet ready to, to take. And moreover, I realized Father Ed's interest at that time in the late 1940s is helping these married couples stay married. And he was speaking at a time when As my mother says, she remembers how she was taught about sex in the 1940s. She was taught that sex is is filthy and disgusting, and you only do it with the one you love. So (laughs) put those two together. Just (laughs) (laughs) so so so, Father Ed was really doing a service to these couples by helping them to understand things that they weren't taught before their marriage that could help to save their marriage. And once I realized that. Then I was like, okay, Father Ed, I get it. This is, this is good. But he challenged me, as I'm sure he challenged many others in his time. Don't you think that came out of that personal respect and everything he had with the, that deep dialogue with bringing yes. people coming with problems? So once you, once you do away with the, what would you call it, the lack of sincere relationships where everything's on a casual basis, once you get down to the deep stuff, you just move a relationship much and much deeper to know the source of the problem, which became obviously evident to him with, with every, everybody in AA and the problems that that would naturally cause. So right here you have, okay, we have a problem and how do we deal with it? You come up with the facts and that's what I got with, with the language. Well, he, he wasn't just a, a novice trying to explain as a third party. He got involved in the science behind yes, it. Like you said, use right. the correct language. And was able to communicate that to people who trusted him and were able to, like you say, share their soul. And, 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 and God, God is there with, with that. A- Amen. Yes, God is there with that. There's another story which I, I tell in Father Ed, which was told by, by a Jesuit who was, I believe, present at the time. So at the time when Father Ed was doing his research into sexology and really trying to use this to help couples to have better marriages, stronger marriages, one day he was having lunch at the St. Louis University Jesuit residence. This was before he got moved to the uh, writer's residence. And the Jesuit provincial was there, the provincial of the Missouri province. That's to say, you know, Father Ed's boss's boss, so to speak, the highest superior in his province was, was there. And Father Ed is talking about his findings with regard to his research into sexology. And the provincial tells him to shut up, perhaps in a slightly more polite way. And then Father Ed 
who I suspect, I don't say this in the book because I don't want to diagnose someone. I'm not a psychologist, but I suspect Father Red was a bit ADD. I, I'm ADD myself and I see a lot of, of my own habits and his habits. Father Ed continued to talk at the lunch table about his findings in sexology research. And so then the provincial actually ordered him under holy obedience to shut yeah. up. All right. That's a nuclear, by the way, yeah. for the listeners. That's like one more word and it's bread and you go to your room. You. Yeah. Right. But, right. you know, again, and I think this is interesting because remind people, they think, well, you know, the Catholic Church is always so repressive on sexuality. Well, first of all, everybody was repressive on sexuality. Yes. Everybody. No exceptions. That's right. You know, Laura and Rob Petrie had twin beds like Lucy yes. and Ricky. They're married. They got two twin beds. Look like my, like my brother's room, you know. That was long after this when we're talking about this. And they just could not handle it. No one knew, had the vocabulary. No one was comfortable using the vocabulary. Right. And, and again, you, you know, when you, you have to understand, these Jesuits are professors. These are presidents of universities. These are not people like, I've never heard such things and I've never been out from under my rock. I mean, these are pretty worldly, well-traveled, sophisticated humans for the time we're talking about. And their heads were exploding. Yes, that's right. And it's just amazing to me, you know, and this is, well, the other thing is that you mentioned, I didn't want to slip by that Father Ed founded the Cana Conferences, which is what you're alluding to, which is Again, one of the huge movements in the preconciliar church. People don't even know this guy. You know what I mean? Yeah. And he's like, and then, you know, Tom mentioned anxiety groups and groups for divorced people. And I mean, he applied the 12 steps and this idea that lay people in a group could work out their problems to so many different organizations. I mean, he must have helped millions of people yeah. through these efforts that, that we don't know about. It's just it's just amazing. Was he the first, Don, was he the first to apply 12 steps to something other than alcoholism? Do you know? As far as I can find, he was. There were people fairly early on, including I noticed some Protestant pastors who were beginning to think about how the 12 steps could be applied elsewhere. But Father... Ed had the biggest and loudest megaphone with regard to spreading the gospel of the 12 steps. And he was the earliest person to consistently and loudly tell everyone whenever he spoke or wrote about AA, he would always say, these 12 steps are not just for alcoholics, they're for overcoming any kind of problem. Right. And I, you know, I, I resonated with that because when, when Tom and I, you know, we, when we went to prison, <laughs> Tom and I went to prison, and not the Turkish one in '78. We're gonna, we won't bring that up. But um, when we went to... I, I just, I just want to take some credit here for being <laughs> silent on that remark and not, you know, you were, you were a very good boy. Yes. You were a very good boy. Yes, you're true. Thank you. Thank you very much. It wasn't Paul McCartney in the Turkish one in 70? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it took a lot of restraint for you. To, it's a cheap shot. I'm disappointed you <laughs> yeah, didn't take right. it. He didn't take it. But that's the way it is in prison. But anyways, you know, one of the things you learn, if you're paying attention as a chaplain, is everybody here is addicted or an alcoholic, like 95%. Mm-hmm. And, 90, and 95% <laughs> are mentally ill. And basically mm-hmm. the story is that's how they're treating their mental illness since our society won't. They start self-medicating with these substances, and then they keep going back to prison because they're still addicted and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. The wheel goes around and around. So when, when I was in prison, when I realized this, I already viewed prison as a mission territory. I'm not in a parish. I'm a missionary. And even though it's, you know, down the streets from where I lived, it's, this is people that I would never run into on a daily basis. They're not all Catholics or whatever. So how can, so the first thing as a missionary is, is if you were going to a foreign country, you would learn the language, you would learn the custom. It's common sense. You're not just going to go in there and know nothing. Once I saw this, I said, oh, and I started talking to the addiction counselors and reading 12-step stuff and picking their brains. And eventually we had all the Catholic chaplains trained in the 12 steps because it's like, this is who's in front of you. And it occurred to me, and I was very pleased when I saw this in your book, it occurred to me, you could use this for anything. Yes. You know, and, and, and of course, then you realize, well, you got Overeaters Anonymous, Gamblers Anonymous, all the, you know, that, yeah. that concept has improved and tested. And, and it is probably the unique American contribution to spirituality, in my opinion, 
of everything that, that's ever oh, come I, out of this country. I agree. And I, I agree completely. And thank you for your work with prisoners. And I want to say something to you specifically since you're Paulists, and I think you can relate to this because it reflects or refers, it's related to some aspect of your Paulist ministry. In the very last article that Father Ed wrote for the Grapevine, the AA newsletter, Father Ed wrote about the 12 steps for the underprivileged non-AA. And it was an article specifically about how the AA's fellowship and its methods could help non-AA people. And in that article, he includes a list of groups, a long paragraph of groups where their tagline is, quote unquote, it's like AA. And in that list, he includes, and here he's writing in, in I think, November, December 1959. He died in April 1960. And so Father Ed, in this list of groups that say that they're like AA in some way, he lists Overeaters Anonymous, Gamblers Anonymous, Check Writers Anonymous, blah, blah, blah. And he lists Daughters of, of Bilitis and Mattachine Society. And you know that old Sesame Street thing, one of these things is different from the others. Right. Well, <laughs> the Mattachine Society, it did take inspiration from AA and its founding in the sense of AA's fellowship. The, the founder of the Mattachine Society used the anonymous and fellowship you know, aspects of AA in founding that. But the Mattachine Society and the Daughters of Belitis were not 12-step groups. They were groups of fellowship for people who are gay. The Mattachine Society for Gay Men, Daughters of Belitis, for gay for gay women and you know they are considered like the two earliest 20th century gay rights groups in the United States so when i first read that in father ed's article i knew that father ed had talked elsewhere about how people could use the 12 steps to overcome unwanted sexual attractions and so i thought well does father ed think did he think that the Mattachine society and daughters of belitis were for people trying to get, you know, cured of gay attraction. Was was he mistaken in that? But when I went through his papers, I found that he knew exactly what those groups were. He had in his papers a pamphlet from the Mattachine Society that was like marked up with his notes. And in this pamphlet, the pamphlet says, we are not out to change society's mores. We are simply seeking to be recognized as human beings deserving of human respect and human rights. And so, you know, it, it really touched me that Father Ed, with the last article that he wrote, was giving, as a Catholic priest, a, a re respect to organizations that, like I said, were not trying to upend Christian morality, but were simply saying that that gays are part of the human universe and should be respected as such. And that's just one of the many ways in which I believe he was ahead of his time. Yeah. Wow. We had Father Jim Martin on, and again, the, his book, Building a Bridge, and a simple, simple request, treat people with dignity. I mean, yes. <laughs> how much, how further away from our faith can we get when you have to remind people in today's day and age to treat people with dignity, respect? Yes, and, and when you think about all the pushback that priests such as Father Jim Martin receive and the, and the Paulists, all the pushback that they receive, not even when they, you know, say something on some contemporary political issue, and there are certain issues on which people can prudentially disagree, but even just when Father Jim says, like, the most innocuous thing, such as that, that gay people are human beings mm -hmm. of, of rights, when you see how he gets attacked, imagine what it was like for Father Ed in 1959, yeah. more than really? half a century ago, even mentioning in public these these gay rights groups. You couldn't talk about married sex. So now think about talking about a, about gay sex. sex. Yeah. I mean, just think about it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's just, but I think my, my sus suspicion, and I have no basis for this except my own experience, but 
You mentioned that Father Ed early on in your book, you mentioned how he tied the 12 steps to the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius, which, you know, is a basis of Jesuit spirituality. So that's not surprising. When I was back in the prison, when I was doing this and saying, well, how do I use this with people? I tied it to real basic stuff. Like I tied it to the mass. So I would do a 12-step commentated mass back in the day. Commentated. So I would stop at certain points and the commentator would read a little script. So, and of course, I got nothing but alcoholics and addicts looking at me. It's not, this is not a normal parish, right? And so we finished the penitential, right? Lord have mercy, all that stuff. You know, you know, I confess to you and almighty God that I'm a hot mess, right? Our, our opening, which is like, my name is Dennis. I'm an alcoholic. That's the price of admission. Well, what do you do at mass? You tell everybody and God that you're a sinner. Yes. Yes. That's your price of admission. Now, a lot of people just saying words or they're not paying attention to saying anything, but whatever. But that is the liturgy that, and it's much like, like the 12 step. And so I would, the commentator would stop and say, that's step one. You just did step one. So I'm trying to tie it to the inmates, like, because they know that if they don't get sobriety, they know their addiction is out at the gate doing push-ups, waiting for them to come out. Doesn't right. matter if they get their confirmation, they get their GED. It all goes out the window as soon as they walk out the door. So I'm trying to tell them, you know, that your faith can be another strand in this sobriety rope, not just the meetings. And then, so we would we would go through, we would go through that, you know. And of course, the whole mass would be step eleven, becoming closer to God, and the dismissal right. Go, the mass is ended go to love and serve the Lord and one another, that's step 12. So there are steps yes, throughout man, the, whole, the whole thing. And it's like, so if you're conscious and aware and participating, which is what Vatican II said we should be doing with the liturgy, this is what you're doing. That's right. And the great thing about that, so that's just basic. It's not even getting to the spiritual exercises or, or many other things. But the 12 steps themselves, what I found was that these are inherently gospel principles. Yes. Every bloody one of them, any one of us can sit down and say, where did Jesus say something like this? You know, you have to wait for St. Ignatius in the 1600s. Well, where did Jesus say this? And you can find it. And what I think the, you know, practical and brilliant use of the steps is for non-alcoholics or people with, you know, I used to, I used to tell the inmates, I'm not an alcoholic or an addict, but I am a jerkaholic or I'm a sinner, you know? <laughs> so, you know, it's like that, that's my cart. But <laughs> people, here's one of the complaints you get from people. We talk in Christianity about what well, love people, be humble. We have these general things, you know, repent, whatever, general themes. But we don't tell them, here's a step-by-step way to do this thing I'm talking about. And right. that's in the 12 steps. Right, right. That if you, you know, if you do these things, you're going to hit the big things for a spiritual awakening according to Jesus. This is what he, pre- this is in the gospel. And so I would think that, my, back to Father Ed, that knowing that, and I, I have no doubt from his tie-in with the exercises that he knew it, I think that in a subversive way, this was conversion. Like, yeah, go use these principles. You don't have to say Jesus. Just go do this. And as any any 12-stepper will tell you, they may come in saying, my higher power is the light bulb or the group, but no one's sober for 10 years saying, yeah, it's the light bulb that's keeping me straight. They get beyond that. Absolutely, yes. I, I, I couldn't agree more. As I write in my book, Father Ed, the story of Bill W.'s spiritual sponsor, certainly Father Ed was a Catholic priest. Certainly, behind the scenes, he and Sister Ignatia were praying for Bill W. to become Catholic. And, you know, that's okay. That's that's all right. They can do that. Say but, a word about Sister Ignatia, because I was looking in the book when I read it. And when I saw Ignatia, I said, okay, this person knows the cast. But, of course, you also mentioned Simon Well and Melchizedek, I believe. So I knew I had found my happy place to, as soon as I saw those references. Any book that can get Melchizedek, Simon Weil, you know, in the same thing. But tell them who Sister Ignatia was. So Sister, Sister, Sister Ignatia was the nun, a member of the Sisters of Charity of, of St. Augustine in Ohio, 
who very early on befriended Dr. Bob, who who was the first you know person to to attain the sobriety through AA, and and Dr. Bob was a medical doctor, and as he was trying to help alcoholics get sober through the principles of AA, he needed to find a way of caring for those whose alcoholism had gotten to the point where they needed hospitalization. And Sister Ignatia was a, what was called at the time, hospital nun. You know, she she was a nun who assisted in a, in a Catholic hospital. And so she, when she was first asked by Dr. Bob just to find a place in the hospital for a drunk so that he could ha- have time to dry out and so that Dr. Bob could talk to him about AA, she kind of hid this drunk in the flower room of the hospital, the room that was used to store the flowers that were being sent to patients. And over time, she personally cared for thousands of alcoholics. So, yeah, as I said, you know, not in the flower room, though, right? Not in the flower room. She had wards. The Daughters of Charity embraced the people that the other hospitals who didn't think they could help or didn't want them there. Oh, that's so. that's absolutely absolutely right. The religious order really became a leader in the, in that, and actually the the superior, the current superior of of the Sisters of Charity of Saint Augustine is currently uh, one of the non-alcoholic trustees of Alcoholics Anonymous. So, so just to complete that thought, we have Father Ed on the one side secretly praying with Sister Ignatia that Bill W will enter the church. On the other side, we have. Father Ed to Bill W and two alcoholics, where, as you said, he never pressured them, never imposed the faith on them, only proposed it. And as I write in my book, Father Ed, Father Ed was convinced that anyone following the 12 steps was on the path of grace, whether they realized it or not, which is your point, Deacon Dennis. And, you know, there's so much more still. I I remember that he started a credit union for, uh, I think it was the workers at the the print shop there for the Queen Mary. Uh, yeah, the Queen's work, yes. Queen's work. He started a credit union there. Again, that, uh, way ahead of time. He was involved uh, with labor unions. He uh, That's right. responsible for getting a gravestone for Dred Scott. I mean, That's right. Uh, That's amazing. Dred Social Scott. Justice. You got Dred Scott in this book. I mean, you know, yeah. hey. I don't know how you do these things. This is like watching a magician, you know, a little bit of Dred Scott. I mean, mean, for for all those people who are upset about the direction that the Supreme Court has taken in the last five years, the Dred Scott decision should give you hope. That got reversed. Okay. (laughs) Well, you know, it's so interesting to read about Father Ed's activism 100 years after the Supreme Court's Dred Scott de- decision, which affirmed that at the time, you know, in United States law, slaves were not recognized as full human beings with with full, you know, human human rights. Specifically, African Americans were not recognized at that. So even if they had been fr- had had been able to uh, escape slavery and get to a free state under the Dred Scott decision, they were still forced to return to the state where they had been held enslaved. So Father Ed noticed that 100 years after that Dred Scott decision and almost 100 years after the death of Dred Scott, Dred Scott himself was still in an unmarked grave. So he started a national campaign to raise funds to place a marker on Dred Scott's grave. This is before the Montgomery bus boycott. You know, this, <laughs> this, this, this is before John Lewis is making... So add enlightenment trouble. about racism to this sure. man's curriculum yes. vitae, yes. you know, like what what was the Dred Scott Memorial? Was that in the 40s or the well, early 50s? Well, it was 1957. But even in the 1940s, Father Ed was speaking vocally about racial justice. And I found a letter that was written for him, I think, in 1950 from his friend A. Philip Randolph, whose statue is a few blocks from where I am right now at Union Station in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. A. Philip Randolph became the president of the March on Washington. But at that time that Father Ed befriended him in the 40s. A. Philip Randolph was best known as the organizer of the Pullman car porters, the, the, the men who were largely African-Americans who, who were porters on trains. And 
they were unionized for the first time with A. Philip Randolph. So uh, Father Ed was good friends with A. Philip Randolph to the point where A. Philip Randolph actually wrote a letter of endorsement for Father Ed that Father Ed carried on his person. And I believe that Father Ed likely showed that letter to every Pullman porter. Right, he, yeah. Like, hey, I, I, so I know the guy. At the ages, yes. I'm okay. But, you know, a, it's just it's just unbelievable. I just want to take a second for the, for the listeners for a historical context for this man. You have to understand, for all of this stuff we've been talking about, the basic concern of the American Catholic Church was, remember, we used to be the Muslims. You know, for you, like, what was it like to be a Catholic back when we're talking about was essentially as if one of your friends told, went and announced, I'm, being, I'm becoming a Muslim. And all the blowback they would get and how, oh, we don't want those people and all that. That used to be Catholics up until John Kennedy got elected president. That's right. And, and, you know, and, and this man died before, before that happened. So anyway, the point is that our whole thing was we were trying to gain respectability in society. Yes. Yes. And it wasn't helping us to deal with alcoholics, a lot of whom were ours, <laughs> you know, by the way. Right, right. We made our contribution. You know, we, didn't, we were trying to be accepted. And, and that was a, you know, we did nothing. And we, we were more patriotic than anybody. We didn't question the government. We didn't question the wars. We signed up. Uh, the Catholics are the highest number of Medal of Honor winners in the history right, of the right. country. I mean, on and on and on. We were uber patriots because we wanted to be finally accepted as real Americans. So what this guy's doing, hanging out with black people, fighting their cause, gay people. This is like his superiors must have been like, I got to keep this quiet. You know, I mean, this is. Well, that's well, that's why even when Father Ed died, the pastor of the St. Francis Xavier College Church in St. Louis, which is. The Jesuit church in St. Louis, church, big, like this big. Gothic palace, this palatial, you know, Gothic, you know, structure. The pastor of, of the college church refused to host Father Ed's funeral. And so it was left to the then provincial of the Jesuits, Father James McQuaid, to call up the pastor and order him under holy obedience to host Father Ed's funeral. And the church was packed and it was packed with people from every level of society, you know, from the highest, you know, city officials down to the little old lady with her lunch in a paper bag who was crying uncontrollably through the entire mass. That's who Father Ed was, and that's how he was. And this is his brother, Jesuit, who lived in the same town, who I'm sure he knew personally. And this Jesuit pastor, again, to my point, this is not helping the respectability, which is the which is the main push that we're having and trying to clean up these immigrants and make them presentable to the Protestant elites of this country. And right. he didn't want those people in the church. And even even his own brother, you know, that he probably had meals with and knew right. frequently right. wasn't someone from who's this guy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you touched on an important point, too, with regard to to the challenge with with, with regard to the church's seeking respectability. You know, I don't want people listening to this to think that I'm just portraying Father Ed as a raging liberal. Father Ed didn't fit into any of our political categories today. One of the things that I discovered as I was doing my research was that he spoke favorably, repeatedly, about Senator uh, Joseph McCarthy. And Senator McCarthy was the one who was involved with with the Un-American Activities Committee right. in Congress, which was the committee that was devoted to rooting out communists from various professions, particularly film. And so as I was researching Father Ed's support of McCarthy, I thought, well, you know, this doesn't quite seem to make sense because Father Ed doesn't speak like McCarthy. He doesn't rail against secret communists and that sort of thing. And finally, I found a letter that Father Ed wrote after McCarthy's death in which he explained that his support of McCarthy was based on the way that the attacks against McCarthy were framed. He felt that the attacks against McCarthy weren't even centered upon McCarthy's politics, but were centered upon making it seem like McCarthy was this sort of 
unwashed, uneducated Irish g- bum, you know, this Irish guy who didn't really deserve to be in Congress. Sure, it's tribalism. Kind of, yeah. it's, kind of, it's kind of like after, I remember after one of the elections in the 2000s, when a Republican was elected president and somebody made this map that they shared on a blog that showed all the states that had voted for this Republican president and called it all Jesus land. You know, mm-hmm. that's kind of elital, elitism that, right. father, that disturbed Father Ed because he had come from a working class Irish background. Sure. And so whether a person was liberal or conservative mm-hmm. didn't matter to him. What mattered to him was that they be treated with respect. Right. It's one, he's one of ours. You can't. You, we can attack our own, but you can't. You can't. He's one of our guys. This it, was a wonderful, yeah. well-written, inspiring book. Yeah, yeah. I'm, 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 t- I'm going to give any all our listeners, I'm going to give you the Deacon Dolan money-back guarantee. If you buy this book <laughs> and you're not enlightened and inspired and encouraged by this story of this yeah. man, I will buy the book from you and give it to someone who will appreciate it. I will yeah, give you yeah. your money back. Any it critics about really the, uh, well. the failures of our church need to look at people like him and the way you presented him. A humble man. Again, don't forget that. This guy is a humble man. He's, he's not out there looking for a reputation. And, uh, people don't even know most of what he did, Tom. No, I, mean, you know, I, I didn't, million, to be like, honest. You, you were talking with all the groups, the millions of people yep. this man has affected who don't even know him or that he's the guy who set this in motion. It's just it's an incredible story. The butterfly of effect. One and person, their kids, right. One person. Yeah. 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 What, what can one person do? Well, we know. I just had to ask one, one quick question. Don, what, what was the, tell me the, the moment you said, I got to do a book on this guy. Because yeah, I know yeah. this guy I was from being a prison chef. When, when did you? Well, I had first discovered Father Ed in 2009 after an alcoholic I knew wrote an article about him. And that made me seek out what was then the only book available that went into any kind of detail about his life. My book, Father Ed, the story of Bill W. Spiritual Sponsor, is the first full biography of him. But before that, there were a couple of other books that touched on aspects of his life. And one of them was a collection, an edited collection of his correspondence with Bill Wilson called The Soul of Sponsorship. That's when I first became interested in Father Ed. With regard to the beginning of my really wanting to write his biography, I would trace that to when I was watching this movie, a documentary called Bill W. that came out around 2011 or so. I remember watching it in a theater and seeing that in this film, there's a reenactment of Father Ed's first meeting with Bill W. And when I saw this actor on the screen portraying Father Ed, even though it was silent and you know, it was narrated by an AA historian who was discussing that, a, the historian Ernie Kurtz. But just watching that image of this man representing Father Ed coming to Bill W. at a time when Bill was really broken down and discouraged and seeing how how Father Ed uh, gave him encouragement to to go on with AA, I just broke down crying. And I just thought, you know, this is crazy. I'm blubbering and I'm not an alcoholic. Why am I blubbering at the side of this priest meeting Bill Wilson. So that was really the beginning, but I didn't actually start writing it until beginning of 2020. I think the degree to which you used his own writings brought it, brought it alive to me. It Thank just you. brought that whole, we're talking like he's present, that, that personification is there and he's with us. So again, we had a delightful time. Do I, is there anything you just want to quickly say that we might have dropped out or? Oh, well, well, thank you. I guess I just like to say that this book, I wrote it as a biography. So, you know, certainly the largest amount of space in it is devoted to Father Ed's work with alcoholics and other people with problems. But as a priest mentioned when he wrote to me, he was surprised that it takes 90 pages for Father Ed to get ordained. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, that was a whole separate question. Exactly. Uh, yes. The torturous path. So thank you so much for our yes, guests. Thank, thank you. It's a real we'll, uh, service. Pass this around. Thank you. A wonderful spiritual book. Your Congratulations, Lent everybody. Lent. Read it for Lent. Thank you very much. Special thanks to El Jefe Paul Snatchko and our editor, David Dalt. The Deacon's Pod is powered by the Paulus Fathers. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts and, of course, at our own website, 
www.deaconspod.com. That's D-E-A-C-O-N-S with an S, Deacons, plural, pod, all one word, dot com. And of course, we'd love to hear your comments at our email address, which is deaconspod, again, with an S, deacons, at paulist.org. That's P-A-U-L-I-S-T dot org. Love to hear from you. That's our offering. We thank you for being with us. On behalf of our colleagues at the Missionary Society of St. Paul the Apostle, we wish you a future brighter than any past. Till next time.